You're listening to the audio ministries of First Baptist Church of Troy, Texas. You're invited to join us for live and in-person morning worship every Sunday morning at 1045 a.m. Visit fbctroytx.org for a list of our activity times and family-centered community ministries. Now here's today's message. If you got your Bible today or you have a Bible app, go ahead and get your Bible handy. You're going to need it here in just a moment. Open up to Luke chapter 17. That's where we're going to be this morning. Luke chapter 17. And um, whichever you're, whether you're, you know, paper copy or electronic, go ahead and turn there. And uh, this morning, we're going to look at three imperative qualities for disciples. And if you've trusted Christ as your Savior, you are a disciple. Now, at what level of discipleship you have come thus far, that may be a different story. But you're a disciple. And we're going to look at three imperative qualities. You absolutely must have these if you're going to be a good disciple of Jesus. When I was, uh, oh, it's been a few years back, I decided I want to take up bow hunting. I had, you know, hunted deer with rifles and so forth uh, growing up, and I thought, I'm going to get into bow hunting. And so I went out and, and found me a bow, and I actually called a, my, one of my dad's good friends is a big-time bow hunter, really, really good. And so I called him up and said, hey, would you, you know, go with me? I'm going I'm to go look at a bow. And he said, well, I'll go with you. And so we went and picked one out, and, and it was a price point that was tolerable and kind of, you know, balancing price and quality and so forth. And so um, he helped me get it all set up. Now, at the time, you know, if you know, if you know anything about, you know, bows and arrows, if you're using a compound or probably even with a recurve, um, they have, you have a little peep sight that's like embedded in the string so that when you draw it back, it, the string kind of turns, it goes ding, and you, you line up your pins over here, um, which I guess would be your sight, with this little peep sight. You put it all in the middle and put that on the arrow where you want the arrow to go, and the arrow will go there. It will if it's set up properly. Well, he was shooting without a peep sight, and I was really intrigued. And he said, man, I was hunting one time, and my peep sight just popped out of the string. And I was like, oh, what am I going to do? And so he had gone without a peep sight. Well, that sounded like a great idea to me. So I was well, set me up. And so we got it all set up. And what I learned is that as long as I lined up three things, and they were lined up properly every time, my arrow would go where I wanted it to go. The first one was I would get up my release mechanism on the string. I'd draw it back. Okay, the first one was this knuckle had to be right there where my ear meets my jaw. Really easy spot to find. The string, as it came down to my hand, just barely laid the tip of my nose on that string. That's one, two, and three was my hand. Well, you might say the sight would be the, but you know, hand and sight picture right here. And every time, and no kidding, it took me a little bit, but I finally got where I could draw it back. Everything had fallen into place, release. And I can't do it now, but I got to where at, at about 40 yards, I could put five or six arrows in a group about the size of a softball or a 18 wheel. No, I'm just kidding. No, but really, I really did. After some practice, was able to do that. And it was amazing. If I got one of those things off out there, it didn't hit where I wanted it to go. And if you've ever tried to, just for fun even, shoot a bow and arrow, probably most people have probably at least picked something up, you know, it is not easy to do. But when those three points were lined up, those three essential points, those arrows went right where I wanted them. If we are going to be the kind of, kind of disciples that Jesus wants, these three things that we're going to talk about this morning, you line these, things, these three things up and you're going to hit the bullseye of being a disciple. 
And a disciple is kind of one of those church words, but it just means to be a learner. That's what it means, okay? Jesus' 12 disciples, they followed him around, and they learned from him. If we're going to be good learners, we've got to line up these three things. And you do that, and you're going to do all right. Luke chapter 17, starting in verse 11. Verse 11. Now, on the way to Jerusalem, Jesus was passing along between Samaria and Galilee. And as he was entering a village, ten men with leprosy met him. They stood at a distance, and they raised their voices, and they said, Jesus, Master, have mercy on us. And when he saw them, he said, Go and show yourselves to the priests. As they went along... They were cleansed. And then one of them, when he saw that he was healed, turned back, praising God with a loud voice. He fell, at his, he fell with his face to the ground at Jesus' feet, and he thanked him. Now this man was a Samaritan. Then Jesus said, were not ten cleansed? Where are the other nine? Was no one found to turn back and give praise to God except this foreigner? And then he said to the man, Get up and go your way. Your faith has made you well. This event takes place while Jesus is on his way to Jerusalem. That was right there in verse 11. Now this is not just any on his way to Jerusalem. He's going to the cross. It's that on his way to Jerusalem. And at this point in our passage, Jesus is traveling along the border between Galilee and Samaria. So Jerusalem would be down here. He's been up here, and so you just kind of would have to go straight through Samaria to get to Jerusalem. So he kind of comes down through Galilee, and he's just kind of paralleling this border between Galilee and Samaria. As he's on his way to the cross, he's, he has withdrawn from making official public appearances. Okay? He's no longer telling Israel, hey, repent, the kingdom of heaven is near. That ship has sailed because they rejected it. His face is set toward the cross. Herod, uh, the king, has threatened to, to kill Jesus. The Jewish Sanhedrin have had a meeting after Jesus raised um, his friend Lazarus from the dead. They had a meeting and they said, if we don't kill this man, the entire nation is going to go after him and we will lose our place and our authority. It's better that one man die for the whole nation than the whole nation be destroyed. The culmination of Jesus' earthly ministry is drawing to a close. And as he's going along, they are entering a village. The village isn't named. We don't know what village it was. That doesn't matter. But as they're coming up to this village, ten men with leprosy meet him outside the village. Now this group of men would have been living together in isolation from everyone else because of their leprosy. Clearly, they have heard about Jesus. They know who this guy is. Jesus has rock star status in that part of the world at this time. He has given, he has given blind people their sight he has made lame people walk. He has healed other people with leprosy. He has raised the dead. People know who Jesus is. And somehow they get word that Jesus is out there 
And they go to meet him. And from a distance, which was required because of their their disease, they cry out, Jesus, Master, have mercy on us. And just the fact that they have leprosy shows the meaning of their cry for mercy. They want to be healed. These uh, men are really in a pathetic, terrible situation. In the Bible, leprosy could describe a lot of different type of sin, uh, sin disorders. Could be that too. <laughs> Skin disorders, the worst of which would have been a disease called Hansen's disease. And it's caused by a mycobacterium leprae, which is a slow-growing bacteria that attacks the nerves, the skin, the eyes, the lining of the nasal passages. Over time, the bacteria attacks the nerves of the body beginning in the extremities and all sense of sensation is lost. And it leads to disablement, to gross disfiguring of the body. You know, people who were infected, they could suffer with blindness, uh, paralysis, the loss of extremities, uh, fingers, toes, your nose, ears, and so forth. Uh, without any, any ability to feel, you could be burned terribly and not even know it. You could sustain an injury. Uh, you could just simply break off a part of your body and, and you wouldn't even feel it. It was an absolutely and is an absolutely terrible disease. It was dreaded in the ancient world. And for those infected with it, it was a death sentence. There was no cure. And these ten men were the original walking dead. That's what they were. If they had Hansen's disease, it was just a matter of time, a slow, miserable wasting away. Now, for the Jewish people, the law of Moses over in Leviticus 13, and we won't turn over there, but I want to read it for you, um, required that people who were infected with a skin disease, especially leprosy, had to be isolated from the community of Israel as long as the disease was present. Listen to this. It's uh, in Leviticus 13, 45 to 46. As for the person who has the infection, his clothes must be torn. The hair, hair of his head must be unbound, messed up. He must cover his mustache and he must call out, unclean, unclean. The whole time he has the infection, he will be continually unclean. He must live in isolation and his place of residence must be outside of the camp. Now the command in Leviticus for Israel was first to preserve the holiness of the people because God was in their midst. I mean, he was in the tabernacle or in the temple and it was to preserve the the holiness of the nation. But there was also a general health aspect of just trying to keep diseases from spreading spreading to other people. These lepers were cut off from outside contact. A terribly sad and hopeless situation. They would gather in communities and they would live together. And the men would be isolated until they died if they didn't get better. Now, these men stand at a distance And they cry out to Jesus, have mercy on us. And you can just hear the desperation in their voices. They're walking dead men. Don't forget that. And here before them is one who has healed the sick. He's made the lame walk again. I mean, paralyzed people have picked up their mat and and trotted on home. He's raised dead people. I mean, Lazarus was in the the grave for days 
before Jesus brought him back to life. And all of that decay was reversed, and he walks out of the tomb, and he's right here before these lepers, and they know it. It's like the light of hope has walked into the darkness of hopelessness and despair. That's what Jesus' presence is for these guys. If he will only heal them, they can live again. This is like a second chance at life is right before them. And not just that. I mean, it would be easier just to die than to die with leprosy. A second chance at life and to escape this horrible outcome that they face. And so when they address Jesus, we see it in the text right here in the plea of these lepers. They call him Jesus and they call him Master. Now, the question here is, do they believe, as Jesus had claimed he was, that he's the Messiah sent from the Father? What are they expressing when they say, Jesus, Master, have mercy on us? There's no immediate indication right here from their request that they like have faith in Jesus, like they believe he's the Messiah, they believe he's the Savior. We don't know that. Their request is for him to simply have mercy on them. They want to be healed, and they think Jesus can do it. Now, mercy, and Harlan spoke on this last week, so we won't spend a lot of time on it today, but it refers to just kindness or loving concern expressed for someone in need. It's not a sit back and be like, hmm, I ain't going to touch that. It's a, wow, you have a need, let me help you. That's this word here. And these men are saying, Jesus, look at our awful condition Look at us. We're unclean. We're filthy. We're dead. We have no hope. Help us. And in compassion, Jesus is moved to help these men. And I think there's a huge lesson right here. Jesus is compassionate. And he responds to us when we cry out for mercy. He's on his way to the cross. Do you think he has anything on his mind? Boy, I would. I don't, I don't think I'd be able to think about anything else. I, fa I face some trivial things in my life compared to the cross, and there are things that have bugged me for days. And I'm preoccupied, and I'm like, my kids are going, Dad, Dad, and I'm just staring off into space, and Stephanie's like, Chris, your kids are calling your name. Uh, oh, sorry. Maybe I'm, you know. You've been there. You know what? The Jesus is on his way to the cross. And, and, and beyond even the physical torture of that event, he's going to be separated from his father. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? That's where he's going. But you know what he does with all of that on his mind? And don't forget, he doesn't like go, super Jesus. I pull off my red cape whenever I'm really stressed and nothing bothers me. Ha ha. Remember, he is fully God, but he's also fully human. Just like us, except without sin. And so he doesn't have like super Jesus power to fall back on when he's stressed. He feels it. He falls back on his Father as he's led by the Spirit. And he takes the time to heal these men, as we're going to see. I think that's a great lesson to notice. That often, I think, we feel, God, do you notice me? Look at me, Jesus. Maybe you don't have leprosy, 
But you just fill in the blank with whatever your thing is that is causing you angst and struggle. Look at me, Jesus. Maybe it's a struggle with sin in your life. We have those. Maybe it's a struggle with, with, with another individual that is just keeping you up at night. Maybe it's a struggle at work. Maybe it's a financial issue. Maybe it is illness that you have of some kind. Jesus, look at me. Do you see me? Yes, he does. He sees us. And he responds with compassion when we cry out to him for mercy. Psalm 103 Verses 13 and 14, as a father has compassion on his children, so the Lord has compassion on his faithful followers. He knows what we're made out of. He realizes that we are made of clay. That's what the psalmist wrote. David wrote that. He said, man, look, as a father, as a father has compassion on his children, the Lord, immeasurably so, has compassion on those who put their hope in him, who trust in him. He gets it. He knows what we're made out of. He made us. He remembers gathering that soil together and fashioning Adam and breathing life into his body. He remembers that. And he knows that he did not make us all-powerful. He also knows that we struggle with sin. He knows how we struggle and he has compassion. He is moved from his heart to help us. That's the God we serve. Now, I find it interesting as we go forward, Jesus did not immediately heal these men. Look at verse 14. He simply says to them, go show yourselves to the priests. Now, normally this was required by the law, but here's how it normally worked you would get better or you would be healed and then you would go to the priests and they would check you out and make sure that you could return to, uh, to your home and back to normal life. But the order that Jesus does this in is really different. He doesn't say, be healed. Now go show yourself to the priests. What does he say? They say, have mercy on us. And he goes, go show yourselves to the priests. Now there is an implication in what Jesus has said. Okay, there's an implication there. But by telling these men to show themselves to the priests before they are healed, Jesus is testing their faith because they have made a faith claim. Jesus, Master, have mercy on us. They have made a faith claim. And he is testing it. This is significant. He is essentially saying, you call me Master, Will you do what I say? This is going to be a very important lesson to bring out our two first imperative qualities for disciples of Jesus, faith and obedience. That's two of the three right there, faith and obedience. Here's a big picture lesson. Genuine faith is always demonstrated by obedience to God's word. Genuine faith is always demonstrated by obedience to God's word. I want us to turn back in our Bibles, Luke chapter 6. Just flip back over there. It's just a few pages to chapter 6. And we're going to look at verses 46 to 49. There's a great illustration for this 
this concept that genuine faith is demonstrated by obedience to God's word. Luke 6, verses 46 to uh, 49. Jesus says, Why do you call me Lord, Lord, and don't do what I tell you? Now that is a powerful question. And I think it's basically what Jesus is saying to these 10 lepers. You call me master, you believe I can heal you, will you do what I say? Now go back to verse 47 here in Luke 6. Let's keep going on here. Everyone who comes to me and listens to my words and puts them into practice I will show you what he is like. He's like a man building a house who dug down deep and laid the foundation on bedrock. When a flood came, the river burst against that house but could not shake it because it had been well built. But the person who hears and does not put my words into practice is like a man who built a house on the ground without a foundation. When the river burst against that house, it collapsed immediately and was utterly destroyed. Now, many of you in here have heard that parable before, the parable of the two home builders. And that's, that's not like how to build a house advice. So that's not the point of that parable. The point of the parable is that if we do not build our lives on hearing and obeying Jesus' words, we are like someone who does not lay a foundation for a house, but simply builds it on the sand, the river bursts out against it, and it's gone to destruction. This parable is at a, another place in the Gospels as well, and Jesus comes at it from the positive. He said, whoever hears my words and practices them is like a man who built his house on a rock. The point that Jesus, I think, is driving home to these lepers, you say you believe who I am. You say you believe I can do this. You call me master. Are you going to do what I say? He doesn't heal them first. He tests their faith. Now, the, uh, the importance of obedience to God can never be underestimated. He is not a friend offering us helpful advice. He is the Lord God Almighty who requires our total obedience at all times as the only pathway to blessing. I want to read that again. The importance of obedience to God can never be underestimated. He is not a friend offering us helpful advice, but He is the Lord God Almighty who requires our total obedience at all times as the only pathway to true blessing. That is so important to get down. Now what God is not looking for is sinless perfection. Remember, He remembers how we are formed. He understands the, the struggle we have with sin. But the pathway to true blessing, I hear God's word, I do what He says. And I can look back over the years of my life and any time I have done that, it has turned out good. Any time I have not done that, God had to use it for good, right? It didn't turn out so well. And a lot of you know what I'm talking about. But this is what he, what he is, is, is telling these guys. And it's the first two qualities, obedient, faith, and obedience. Faith, obedience. There's one more, and we'll get to it in just a minute. 
Jesus gave these men an opportunity to demonstrate their faith by obeying his command before receiving the blessing, right? They could have said, hey, Jesus, we're not healed yet, man. Look at this. That doesn't make sense. We've got to be healed, and then we go show ourselves to the priest. Who, do, who are you really, man? Golly, what a disappointment. But that's not what they said. These guys obeyed Jesus. They didn't hesitate a moment. They turned and they left immediately. Reminds me of my grandfather, my mom's dad. He lived with us for several years before he passed. And uh, he loved to get in the car and go somewhere. I mean, just about lived for it. And uh, you could go and you'd ask him, Granddaddy, you want to go to town? And he wouldn't hesitate a moment. And with the speed of a tortoise on the August asphalt, he would make for the door. <laughs> All right. And he would tell us, if you're waiting on me, you're backing up. And I think that these lepers would have said, if you're waiting on me, you're backing up. I'm headed to the priest. And listen, and check this out. They hit the road with a great testimony. And after obeying Jesus' command, what happened? They were cleansed. Can you imagine what that must have? Try to put yourself in those lepers' rags. Perhaps your, your, your fingers are all gone and all you have is a nub of a hand. Perhaps your, your parts of your ears and your nose have fallen off and you're so disfigured that you barely look human. Now try to get your mind around this. What must it have felt like to feel that change in their bodies as they went? I, I can't begin to imagine it. Everything in a moment was back to normal. Maybe they hadn't felt, had any feeling in their hands or feet for, for a long time, for years maybe. And then all of a sudden they could feel their fingers. They put their hands on their face and they could feel again. And their nose was back. And it, I think you'd have to live it to know what it was like. I just can't imagine what they must have experienced. And that's why it's so unthinkable to me that they could experience so great a physical healing, a marvelous miracle, and not turn around and come back to Jesus in gratitude and awe. They simply received the blessing from Jesus and they carry on as if he's not even there. They took the gift and they ran. Now, I gotta admit, when I first was studying this passage and looking at this part, I thought, you pack of rotten ingrates who do you think you are? I mean, here's Jesus. He's on the way to the cross, you know, and you just ran off and you didn't even say thanks. Mail you a postcard, Jesus. Boo! I was, I was really, you know, but when I compared it to, you know, the guy we'll look at it in a minute, it made it even worse. I'm like, this guy came back. What is wrong with you fellas? But the more I got to thinking about it, though each one of them truly, they should have come back and they should have thanked Jesus and we're going to see in a moment what they missed out on. I really don't want to be overly hard on them. I mean, they did. They believed that Jesus could heal them, and they called out to him. They obeyed his command without being healed, demonstrating their faith. And so, you know, they've got this in their corner. And they were so excited to be healed and rejoin their family and friends. And maybe it was just the wonder of it all that just over, overcame them. But though they received something really wonderful, their blind ingratitude caused them to miss out on something even 
greater. Knowing Jesus and receiving his commendation for their faith. We're going to see that this guy who comes and falls at Jesus' feet, what he receives, and these other nine, they missed it. They missed it because of ingratitude. So we have our first two qualities, faith and obedience. Our third imperative quality, you've probably guessed it by now, is gratitude. It's gratitude. And we see it from this last guy as all of the fellows are, you know, headed this way. Now, the one leper, I mean, he had to at least turn and go because that was the qualification for being healed. So we know he did a 180 and he took off. And as he went, just like the other nine, he was healed. But as he was going, he did something different. He sees the change in his body and he turns immediately around and he comes back. And, and, and we got to look at what he's doing here. So when he saw he was healed, he turned back, praising God with a loud voice, and he fell with his face uh, to the ground before Jesus. This man is praising who? God. And this is important because we're not sure exactly what they know about Jesus. They know he's a prophet, a teacher. They know he's worked miracles. What does he really know about Jesus? Who is he praising? He's praising God. That's very important to observe there. He's praising God. He connects the miracle that Jesus has done for him with the goodness of God. And he comes back praising God and he falls at Jesus' feet and he thanks him. And I think it's unmistakable that with one breath he praises God with a loud voice. He's letting everybody know what has happened. And with another breath he offers thanks down at Jesus' feet. He doesn't just believe that Jesus could heal him. Thank you very much. He's already believed that. He believes that Jesus is the one sent from God and he falls down in thankful, grateful worship. Now Luke at this point adds a little parenthetical comment that's so important. It says, now he was a what? A foreigner, a Samaritan. This man was a Samaritan. And we're going to see that Jesus describes him later as a foreigner. He is a Samaritan. Now, this very likely, and I think it does, indicates the ethnicity of the other nine. What do you think that that tells us about their ethnic background? They are, are Israelites. And they should have known better. They would have grown up as little Jewish boys going to synagogue and hearing the men read the, the Torah and the prophets. They would have known about the promised Messiah and they should have caught it, but they didn't. This Samaritan, oh, he did. It's interesting, the Samaritans, reject, they only accepted the first five books of the Old Testament. All the rest of it, they said, we're not interested. They refused to go worship in Jerusalem at the temple, but they built their own temple on Mount Gerizim where they would go and worship. They had an incomplete revelation because they rejected a large portion of the Old Testament. They had an incomplete concept of who God was. But what they did know, they did know that the Messiah had been promised. Remember the woman at the well 
in John chapter 4, and Jesus is talking with her, and they're having this conversation. At one point, in, uh, down in verse 25, she says, I know that the Messiah is coming, the one called Christ. These Samaritans knew the Messiah was coming. They at least knew that. That woman at the well testified to that, and I think this man does too. When he experienced this miraculous healing, he knew only God can do that. And he did a 180, and he got his self back to Jesus. We look at the response of Jesus. He asks three questions, and with every question, he gets down to the point. Look at the first one. We're not 10 cleansed? It anticipates a positive answer, right? Well, yeah, I counted. There were 10. The second question. Where are the other nine? Where are those guys? And you can like hear the crickets chirping. Everybody's like, oh man. I got to check my text messages. Hang on. <laughs> you know? They, they know where Jesus is going. Because you get this scene. Here's Jesus. This man is still down at his feet. And Jesus is asking these questions. Pointing out the obvious problem at hand. The third question. Was no one found to turn back and give praise to God except this foreigner? Now there's three words we've got to look at in Jesus' last question. Was no one found to turn back? 35 times that word happens in the New Testament. You want to know? 33 of them are in Luke's gospel and Acts, which Luke wrote. The other three, or the others, are in other places. 33 out of the 35 uses of that word turned back, Luke uses. Do you think he put that word here on purpose? I do. The second one is to give glory, or your translation might say to give praise to God. It's the Greek word doxazo. Sounds like doxology, which would be a study of the glory of God. We sing praise God from whom all blessings flow, the doxology. Was no one found, Jesus said, to, to turn around and come to the Lord himself and praise and glorify God except this foreigner? And that word, like I mentioned, it just indicates that the guys that should have gotten it didn't get it. And the guy that should not have gotten it got it. And he came and he turned, which by the way is the definition of repentance, to turn and go the other direction and to glorify God for what God had done for him. The failure of the nine lepers to return acknowledges, or excuse me, the failure of the nine lepers to come back to Jesus, it is an illustration of the entire nation of Israel at that point. John chapter 1, verses 10 and 11, Jesus was in the world and the world was created by him, but the world didn't recognize him. He came to what was his own, but his own received him not. They gave him the stiff arm. As a nation, they rejected him. You are not our Messiah. And they're still waiting. They are still waiting. And those nine ungrateful lepers missed the chance to fall before their long-awaited Savior, the Messiah. 
the living God who created the heavens and the earth and who knows all things and does all things well. Ingratitude caused them to be blind to who was standing right before them. And they left and they missed out. But gratitude moved this one guy to, to come to Jesus and to fall before him and have this magnificent commendation. Look what Jesus says to him in the last verse down there in verse 19. Get up and go your way. Your faith has made you well. Jesus clearly, now don't miss this, Jesus clearly wanted that man and all these people to know what it was that really made him well. Now go with me on this. It was not obedience that made him well. What does the text tell us? What did Jesus say to him? Go on your way. Your what has made you well? Faith. Faith. Now listen to this. The Jewish people had bought into a false righteousness. They thought that obedience to the laws of God could earn God's admiration and his acceptance. That's what they thought. Man, if we just keep all the laws, and the Pharisees were professional law keepers. They had it memorized. They knew it all. They did it all. And no one could be like them. And so when Jesus said to his disciples, unless your righteousness surpasses that of the scribes and Pharisees, you're not getting into the kingdom. And his disciples were like, what? They knew they couldn't do that. But what he meant is he says, I have a righteousness that you need, and it vastly superior to this false righteousness through obedience to commands and law-keeping that you people think you can get. Anyone can keep rules. Jesus is looking for faith that motivates obedience. That's what he wants. He doesn't want a bunch of law-keeping. Not that the Old Testament law and God's commands are unimportant. They're very important. But he never wants us to think that we can buy us a spot in heaven by being good enough to get there, by obeying enough commands and simply making it. Absolutely not. It was the faith that made this man well, and it is faith that Jesus is looking for. The word translated made you well, it's a word, it's a Greek word, sozo. And it can also be translated, and it is used in the context to speak of our salvation. You could read it this way, your faith has saved you. Now, I think that Luke, in using that word on purpose, I think there are salvation overtones, at least in this passage right here. Your faith has made you well. You are saved by faith. This man believed that Jesus could heal him. And then he believed in who Jesus was. And he came to him. And I think that this man was born again into a saving relationship by faith in Christ, just like the disciples had been. Because the criterion for being saved is always by God's grace through faith in whatever he has made known to me. For Abraham, remember Genesis? Abraham believed God and it was credited to him as righteousness. Did Abraham know about the cross? No, he did not. But he was saved. How? By God's grace, through faith in whatever God had shown to him at the time. And I think that's what happened right here. We know about the cross. We know that Jesus is the way to heaven. If you're getting to heaven, you're going through the cross. There is no other way. There is no other way. 
Gratitude was our third indispensable quality. And to close it out, what is it about these three, especially gratitude? Because I think that's the one that set this last leper apart from those other nine. What is it about gratitude that does this? Well, I think that gratitude in our lives, when I come to God and I am thankful for, for what he has done in my life, I think it acknowledges the wisdom and the knowledge of God. We're saying, you know what, God, this is what you have given me. This is what you know I need. And, and, and I want to thank you. It may be different than what I thought, but you are wise. And if you, if, if you didn't give me what I asked for and you did something different, you are the wise God and I'll trust you. Lord, you know all things. Tomorrow, the next day, and so forth and so on, and years and all into eternity. God, I will trust you. Thank you for my home and my life and my family and my job and my this and my that. Thank you, God. I think that gratitude, it also acknowledges the goodness and the kindness and the love of God. God, you have been good to me. You have been kind to me. You have been loving to me. Thank you. Thank you. And I think gratitude also cultivates humility and contentment in Jesus' disciples. When I come before God, it is the lesser coming to the greater to say thank you for what you have given to me. I assume a position beneath him. Very hard for people to assume a position beneath anyone but ourselves. But to be a worshiper, we must become before the Lord and humble ourselves. And when I'm saying thank you, I'm humbling myself before the Lord. And it also cultivates contentment. Thank you, God, for all that you've given me. This is enough. Thank you. You ever notice how if you're saying thank you regularly and you're cultivating gratitude that it keeps your eyes from looking around at all the things you don't have? But when we're not and we're looking at all the things that we don't have and we want and wish we could get, it's very hard to be grateful. But when we're cultivating gratitude, man, it says, God, thank you. You know what? If all I get is to be with you in heaven, that is enough. That's enough. Let's just draw the line at the bottom of the equation. But Lord, above that, you have given me so much. Thank you. Thank you for my home and the food that I eat, the car that I drive, the clothes that I wear, the sight that I have, the, the ability to walk, the ability to hear, the, the whatever. There are countless numbers of ways God has blessed us. And gratitude is the difference maker that opens the door to intimacy and fellowship with God that other people will miss who do not cultivate gratitude. That was the difference for this leper. He was grateful. He recognized that this was someone who had just rescued his life. He praised God. He thanked Jesus. And it made him do a 180 in a different direction in his whole life. The other nine missed it. They missed. Now they were healed. And they got to live the rest of their life. But look what they missed. I would encourage you to remember that Jesus is a compassionate God. And he, he answers us and he helps us when we call out to him for mercy. Remember that genuine faith is always demonstrated by obedience to God's commands. If I call him master, I've got to do what he says or I'm lying to him. 
Third, a grateful heart to God is the open doorway to deeper and greater closeness and fellowship with the Lord. And if you will line up these three things, faith, obedience, and gratitude, when you draw back your string and you release that arrow, it's going to hit right in the bullseye of being the disciple that Jesus wants. Now the question today is what are you going to do about it? What am I going to do about it? Where is God challenging you in faith? Where in your life is he challenging you to step out into something that you're going, <gasps> where is God challenging you with obedience? What does he have in your life that you have been digging in your heels? I'm not going there, Lord. And are you cultivating, am I cultivating a daily life of gratitude. So it's go time. You have three areas that you can think about. And I know that the Holy Spirit is working on us in this room today. It's coming up on Thanksgiving, right? What better time of the year to turn our hearts toward gratitude and to step out in faith and obedience to follow the Lord in whatever it is. We're going to have a time of of uh, invitation in just a moment and and Lynn is going to play um, instrumental piece on the on the piano and I just want you to ask these questions to the Lord God where, where where do you want me to step out in faith where do I need to start obeying you and God thank you will you help me to be a person who cultivates gratitude because I don't want to be like those nine guys that took the gift and ran Man, I want to know you. And if gratitude is a key that unlocks that door for me, then help me, Lord. I'm going to give you thanks. Let's pray. God, we bow our heads before you. We, we worship you and we thank you so much for your word and the, the example of this one man that we're still talking about 2,000 years later and his example, his faith, his obedience, and his gratitude that set him apart from these other guys. Lord, help us to be those kind of disciples that we would cultivate faith and obedience to your commands and gratitude, Lord. That is a pathway to blessing. It is the pathway to knowing you. Help us, Lord, in Jesus' name, amen. We'd like to personally thank you for taking the time out of your day to hear our latest message. Do us a favor and send an email to outreach at fbctroytx.org to let us know that you heard us and what you thought of the message. Remember to visit fbctroytx.org to learn more about how we support our local community. Again, thank you for listening.